Welcome to episode 113 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers Podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Podcast Network. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and I'm joined again, as always, by JP Breen and Ryan Top. And we're, what are we, three games or four games in the World Series? Four games. Game uh, five will be on Sunday night. So after, people will be listening to this after game okay. five is played. And right now we're tied at two games apiece. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> JP, have you enjoyed the World Series so far? Uh, I haven't been able to watch every game. I watched the first one, which was uh, entertaining. But after that, I haven't necessarily taken the time to uh, uh, to follow it along. I followed along, of course, but I haven't necessarily been sitting down to watching them. Uh, watching them after the first one. I watched one and two, and have been at concerts the last two nights, so I haven't been able to watch uh, three or four at all. Yeah, it's your your holy week with widespread panic in Milwaukee for three nights. Um, but <laughs> no, it, it is a good reminder though that being up two games in a seven game series doesn't mean you're guaranteed anything. No, and it was kind of weird though because the pitching matchup seemed to slip to the advantage of the Nationals a little bit. I'd say Corbin is probably better than Grinky. And then game four was going to be a bullpen game for the Astros. And uh, the Nationals were able to go with uh, Anibal Sanchez, right? I, uh, this may all be completely wrong. Were they, did they juggle this around even more than that? No, that sounds, yeah, that sounds right. So, yeah, like you wouldn't necessarily think at that point that the advantage had kind of flipped to uh, Washington, especially being up to nothing and having beaten both Cole and Verlander. And yep, here comes Houston because, you know, they're a really, really good team. Yeah, JP, going into this, I mean, I forget. You picked Houston? I mean, I think a lot of people would have picked Houston because they're as close to a juggernaut as uh, any team in baseball right now. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if I picked anyone, but, yeah, I would have picked Houston. Yeah, I, I mean, think- Houston. Houston's the best <laughs> Sorry, team in baseball I got, right now. I got stuck mid-drink on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I caught that. That's why I stepped in, and now we're we're talking about it instead of just letting it go. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I mean, Houston is the best team in baseball and has probably been the best team in baseball for like three years now, uh, and they have a World Series already to their credit for it. So, you know, and they were built to do this. This was the intent of all that tanking and all of the losing and all of the the very callous moves that they make where it's just, you know, pure value and – that's what the whole purpose of this was, was to create a juggernaut, and they did it. They got what they wanted. Yep. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the rest of it plays out. Obviously, um, I don't know. I guess, you know, Brewer fans can have whatever kind of rooting interest they want. The, the, the game against the Nationals was painful, but I don't think anybody held it necessarily against the Nationals in any way. So uh, it'll be interesting going forward. Yeah, and I would say I think that – I think I mentioned this last week. I can't remember, but – it's one of those things that I think I would much rather see the Nationals win just because I think there are a lot of really great stories within the Nationals team. Whether you're looking at kind of the ascendance of Juan Soto, you're looking at, you know, Scherzer and and Strasburg being able to finally lift it. You've got the Ryan Zimmerman story, which is really nice. Uh, Howie Kendrick, I think, is kind of an underrated story on 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 the Nationals, but it would also be nice to see, you know, Zach Greinke being being able to to win a World Series and everything like that as well. Yeah, I saw some uh, Twitter video today of Zach Greinke's uh, son running towards him in the bowels of the stadium, and it's like he's not a robot. No, it's like Zach Greinke actually cares about a lot of things. He just doesn't care about you know things that most people expect him to care about. No, no, he he has no patience for putting on like a front of 
you know, caring about something in a press conference or whatever, people are asking him questions. Like, well, did you guys see that press conference? Somebody went through and counted the words and it was like, he had like 47 words spoken. Everything was like one and two word answers. And well, but the reporters it, just kind of gave up. <laughs> it was stupid though, because it was going into the uh, ALCS and they were like, how are you going to feel about making a world series? And he was like, you know, you can definitely hear in his, in his voice where he's basically just like, we haven't even started the series yet. Like, what are you talking about? Or just like, yeah, if we make the World Series, that's going to be awesome. I'm going to enjoy it. World Series is fun. <laughs> like, well, what is he going to say? Yeah, and they're like, what is it like? Gonna, what is it going to be like facing the Yankees versus facing whoever? I don't remember who they faced before that. And he was like, yeah, I mean, facing better hitters is always tougher than facing less good hitters. Uh, it's he's like, this is these are really stupid questions and. I think one of the most interesting things there were, well, there were two interesting things that I think came out of like what Granky does more generally is I remember when he first signed with uh, Arizona and they asked him why he signed with Arizona and he was like, well, they paid me the most money and, and <laughs> which and, hero hero. Well, and everyone was like, I can't believe he said that. And I was like, he, I mean, he could have made up other reasons, but he was like, that's why I came here. But I the other thing I like the dry heat. Yeah, because <laughs> because apparently he's retiring. I I believe in this Arizona project. Um, but the other thing, too, was uh, I guess Jeff Passan said that he sat down for like an hour and a half conversation with Zach Granke and it was like really enjoyable. And they had a conversation about everything. And like Zach Granke enjoys having conversations with people that he finds value in. And he just doesn't he doesn't like anything that isn't interesting. And he's just not afraid to tell you that. Well, exactly. When you get in those reporter scrums where you got every, you know, possible person screaming questions. I hate to tell you this, but there's some idiots in there. Especially and like a ask. New York reporter scrum. If it, the Yankees are involved in it, you know that brings like double the media. Yeah, and a lot they're of them are ask, idiots. They're going to ask like bad, the Bergen County Register, just morons. A lot will ask bad questions or very cliche questions, assuming that whoever they are, you know, getting sound bites from will basically give them something interesting as yeah. opposed to trying to draw something interesting out in a conversation where if Passon's one-on-one yeah. -on -one with him, then you're having a conversation, which is a completely yeah. different thing. Yeah. So I guess, so two things happen. Oh, Cause like number one, the biggest thing that frustrates me with, you know, I don't give, I don't do press conferences obviously. So it's not something in which like I could ask better questions, but a lot of the time you're just like, well, I know exactly by your question, what story you want to write. And you just need a quote for this one paragraph that you're really working on. And that's not interesting to to hear those kind of answers when you know exactly what the answer that they want prior to doing anything. But I guess with the the passing thing, they were talking about how Granky loved getting uh, guacamole on his Chipotle burritos. Like this was, they were just like talking about it, and then they ended up raising the price like thirty cents or whatever, and it pissed Granky off. And he was like, "I will never get guacamole." <laughs> he was that like, "This is the most Zachary thing ever." Well, and the reason was they, and he, I guess, asked him why, and he says, "I won't let them win," <laughs> which is just that's like, amazing. Oh my god, like, that's amazing! Just you know, and of course, like those are things where they were just like shooting the shit and talking, and it was just one of those things that, of course, like something that Granky really cared about. And Passon was like, "Is this really? Yeah, okay, we can run with this." Um, well, so I mean, I think there was a trade war that inflated the price of <laughs> avocados, so it probably wasn't Chipotle's 
sole intent. But um, speaking anyways. of Jeff Passan, oh, okay, uh, you have did, more about Passan. Well, I was just going to say I was going to recommend his article on the Houston Astros situation. I think he wrote one of the best things I had seen written about it yet, which got into the whole Astros culture and like how this was a product of their overall culture. Like this was not a mistake. The all the the nonsense that happened with them and the uh, the reporters. Like this was not a mistake. This is part of their culture. It's part of who they are. So of course, it's worth it reading. I mean- I was gonna say you had you had their their GM uh, uh, blanking now, yeah, and who said afterwards? You know they were asking about the original uh, press release that ended up going out, their original statement on it, in which they tried to shame the uh, and defame the um, Stephanie Epstein, I believe her name is, mm-hmm. and and it was one of those things in which. They then asked him, they said, did you see that statement before it went out? And he said, yeah, yeah, I saw it. I okayed it. And you're like, it's a it's a broader it's a broader thing that absolutely needs to be talked about more. But but it won't be. And and obviously there are are people that are going to be able to bring much more to the table than we can on the subject. Yeah. The best part of it was when he was asked in a press conference uh, if he had spoken to the reporter who they had slammed and defamed. And he said, no, I haven't had the time yet. And she was literally sitting in the room. Then while he said that, she was literally sitting in the room, which tells you all you need to know about their priorities and how they handle things. Sure. So, But I mean, also, I think to say the Astros are somehow an outlier is incorrect. I would say... They're more extreme than basically anybody else. They really push that direction. I, well, mm. based, based on what you publicly know, yes. Yeah. And people have said this going back to the rebuild. People when, who... People who covered the Astros. It's true. That is true. Yeah. I mean, do we know of a lot of very diverse front offices that would somehow fly in the face of why this culture would breed in Houston versus other places? Well, it's it, the, the culture issue is just more that winning goes ahead of anything else and there's oh, nothing else. As that... opposed to all those other teams where the winning part doesn't matter as much. I mean, a lot of teams didn't trade for Roberto Osuna, and the Astros did. So, well, and you've also got the Yankees who decided to both uh, a take uh, Roldis Chapman on a trade in which they basically didn't have to. Uh, well, they gave up it? nothing. Let's be they, frank; they gave up nothing. Nothing, and then were able to then trade him and then re-sign him. Yeah, the Cubs traded for Chapman, mm-hmm. and Addison Russell still hangs around. It's true. That's yep. And I'm not going to call it the Cubs as being. The only other one. I'm just saying no. that's another example of here's another franchise that we well, see we, regularly. We just mentioned the Yankees too. I mean, the, yes, there's a lot of it, but I would say the Brewers have also done things that haven't been great. Uh, and well, they and, kept resigning K Rod, and he had his own history of that. Yeah. So, okay. After that little wet blanket, we'll see how the rest of the World Series shakes out, and hopefully, baseball has a fun and exciting conclusion to the season. Go Nats. Yeah. Uh, you can help fans find the pack this podcast by rating and interviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can follow the three of us on Twitter. JP is Ghost Runner on second base. Ryan is RD Top, and I am Steve Garshinsky. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast network, you can visit patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast and the reporting is eligible weekly Packers preview, which I recommend you check out if you got a chance. 
Yeah, it's very good. I hadn't been listening to the previews, and I just went through and actually listened to a bunch of old ones because mm-hmm. I was on there and I uh, was like, oh, yeah, this is it's amazing how much of it Paul gets right ahead of time. And I want to say the week seven preview is available for free. It is available so to the public for free. If you want to go back, they're usually 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, Paul's just kind of given a rundown of the game and that one you can listen to and then you can compare it to what actually happened in. I don't know. What game was that? Week seven, that would yeah, have been well, Raiders, I think. I think it was a yeah, the Raiders, Raiders preview. I think he it was all about Darren Waller, so he was right on that one. He's been right more often than not when <laughs> yeah, in that stuff. Yeah, so check that out. Milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by Carbon Four Brewing and their English child malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. You know them for the for their great beers like Dragon Flute, Block Party, and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. Carbon Four's next pilot beer release is this Thursday on Halloween. Are you excited? It's going to be spooktacular. Spooktacular. Uh, this is, oh, what is it? Visit the brewery for their caramel cheesecake stout. Oh, that sounds delicious. I did char- caramel cheesecake stout. It's candy in a glass. Dude, that, I. I think you have to go to the mm. bar and say trick or treat if you're going to order it. Yeah, I'm going to be traveling through Madison next weekend. I think I'm going to take my crawlers with me. There you go. Uh, so check that one out. It's a pilot beer, so it's not going to be around long. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have any plans for Halloween, try the Halloween dinner and beer pairing. It's a three-course meal plus dessert of some Halloween-themed dishes. Contact the brewery for tickets and make a reservation today. Uh, don't forget, you can just visit the brewery on Kinsman Boulevard on Madison's east side. As always, get 20% off merch in the Carbon 4 web store with the promo code MKE Tailgate. Check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer brilliance. So we're finally to this point where we're going to talk about the entire season and how it went down. I know it's been a while. It has. We've kind of like teased this one out for a little bit because all of a sudden we're looking at this and it's like, well, it's almost November. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a lot of time to kill in October this year, unfortunately. Last year, we had a lot more to talk about in October uh, about the Brewers specifically. Yeah, last year, year I think we were probably wrapping up the uh, uh, recap of the NLCS. Yeah. Around this time. So, yeah, yeah we definitely right. a different season. But we did get another postseason this year, albeit short. But you know what? That's better than a lot of brewer seasons. So let's not overlook that. Hey, there were 20 the teams that, came that weren't it. in the postseason this year. Exactly. So uh, the brewer season opened up. They were 12-6 and six in March and April, which was a tough schedule. I think everybody was thrilled by this at the time because we thought – if they come out 500, they were going to be lucky. Yeah, it was like the Cardinals for nine games, and they had the Cubs in there, and the Dodgers for a bunch of games. Like They started off with an absolutely killer schedule, and it it mostly went well. I mean, they're 12-6, and six, so it, it mostly went well. Well, um, it was an interesting month because for how good the record looked, we saw a lot of the, the struggles that were going to bite the Brewers all season long. So we had young starting pitchers that weren't really coming through for them. Um, you know, Shaw was not playing well. Aguilar was not playing well. Um, and eventually they actually had to, they signed Gio Gonzalez by the end of the month. Yeah, I think it was very early Mar- uh, May, but yeah, it was it was right around there. Yeah. Because Chase Anderson went into the rotation first and then they were bumping around with, other things i I know uh, hauser got some starts in there but one of the things that floated him early was uh, christian yelich started the season off just on fire and we thought wow it's another hot streak but apparently it was the new normal for christian yelich so jp when you were watching christian yelich early in the season 
Was there anything that kind of tipped you off to like, oh, this is what he can actually be for 162 games and not just like this is a post all-star break uh, hot streak that he had in 2018? No, I think the the biggest thing for me with Yelich was, you know, we kind of held our breath on projecting what he did in the second half going forward because it was so outlandish, but also it kind of flew in the face of all of the other data you have. And as we've talked about, you know, with Grisham, we've talked about with other guys on the Brewers in the past years, it's like you need to see something again the next year before you can really talk about whether or not something is sustainable. And really, until the season starts, you can't really know. And then when Yelich just absolutely started going yard, it was like, well, all right, I guess we need to start recalibrating what we've got going on here. And and when you started to see kind of how teams were starting to pitch him, you started to see how he was allowing himself to kind of work to all all parts of the field as well with power showed that kind of Yelich had had leveled up in certain ways. And and that was the biggest takeaway in April was kind of everyone going, well, I guess we got a really good one on our hands. Now, did you ever see this in Yelich? Because I know you were always a big Yelich fan. And I know it's partly because I'd ask you for like fantasy baseball advice before I even started this podcast. And I'd be like, who should I go after? You said Christian Yelich. And I got him in a, a league where we had like keepers. Yeah. And then that league shut down shortly thereafter. So I was always, I still bring it up to one of my buddies who ran that league. I'm like, I traded for Christian Yelich right before he went off like this. And then you and closed the league down. And you were like, you were like, you know, correlation is causation. It is. Yeah. You, because I got Christian Yelich. Yes, exactly. So I'm like, I'm getting screwed here and not winning as much money as I ought to. But you were a big Yelich fan. Yeah. Is this even in the realm of what you saw for Yelich as a full season type player, not just hot streaks, but like this is the kind of player he can be. No, I think the biggest thing that you liked about Yelich was kind of a dude who could hit 300 with, you know, 20 to 25 uh, home runs and somebody who was going to be a, a good corner outfielder, somebody that you could just kind of see as one of the best pure hitters in baseball. And the question was always, you know, is he going to be more kind of Eric Hosmer in right field? The guy, kind of the old Eric Hosmer before he took a few steps back, but Eric Hosmer was always just this dude who could hit for a high average and just wasn't quite as good as you wanted him to be because you really wanted the power to be there. And Yelich, you kind of saw he was in a bad ballpark for him and you wanted to get him to the part to the point where he could hit 20 home runs. And you were like, you know, let's get let's get the ball in the air a little bit more. But he was such a quality hitter. And, you know, he reminded me a lot of, um, you know, like the the best versions of, of uh, Michael Brantley as well, where you were just like, this is a dude who hits for her decent power, like not great power, decent power, but somebody who can take a walk, somebody who can really hit for average, somebody who's good in the outfield and just a good overall player. And then I did not in any way see Yelich as a dude who was going to hit 40 bombs. Like, no way. Yeah, I mean, it's totally surprising that he that the power came like that. That's that's the main thing. We knew he was a good hitter. We knew that there was like all the other skills were there. He's a fantastic base runner and I think maybe one of the best base runners I've ever seen. He just does everything kind of right in that way and is a good defender, gets to the baseballs. Shouldn't really be in center field, but he because of Lorenzo Cain being around, he doesn't really have to. So, yeah, all of it together just works 
magnificently. And when that power leveled up, yeah, you, you have this sort of like Barry Bonds light player that you couldn't have imagined having when they, when they made the trade. So it's been remarkable. And I know we had a question about that, right? Yeah. I think a lot of, well, that's, that's looking a ways ahead. The question we actually have, so we can get to that in a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of Yelich's value is tied to you're getting a really good player for like five seasons. Well, and he's on a ridiculous contract too. So you're well, but that's the point. But it also, was like the value in Yelich, he was very good. The contract was team friendly, and it was five years, which is what the Brewers need. Is you know need to guarantee a certain length of time that they're going to be on a team. Trading for a guy for a season or two, they usually don't have a window that's going right. to work out for that. They have they have spent a lot of prospect capital over the years on guys to rent for a half a season or a season and a half, and it's been you know somewhat to their detriment and this was not that so um, i think the the craziest thing for me about yelich is he had an ops over a thousand in four out of the six months that he played yeah he was always hitting you never yeah. felt like christian yelich has hit a point where he's struggling quite a bit yeah and there and there was one there was one month in which so it may and he hit 247 that month but still was hitting for power his ops was still over 900 and his batting average on balls and play that month was like 228 which ha- which happens but like the fact that he was able to supplement not hitting your like the base hits not really falling with the ability to to hit for enough power and still be able to take walks to the point that he still you know got double digit walk rates um you you have now started to see opposing teams treat him a little bit like not peak Barry Bonds where like Barry Bonds was like even if even if the bases were loaded you were still like do do you walk him I mean it happens sometimes to Barry Bonds I know it was just like do you just do you just walk him instead but there were you saw teams basically navigating around him in the lineup to say we will walk or pitch around Christian Yelich at all times to make sure that he is not able to beat us and then of course when guys did try to go against him uh he absolutely lit him up yeah. So, um, again, we were talking about how in, in late April, we were kind of seeing the, the struggles of the young starting pitching staff. Uh, and obviously that carried into May when they had to start making some adjustments to the rotation. Yeah. Um, and, and Brandon Woodruff had a rough start as well. I mean, his start was it was OK. It, he gave up some runs, but the peripherals were still there where you weren't worried about it. I remember we talked about this. Early on, where sure. it was like he was the, the one that we knew. Good. He was the one we knew. Like, okay, give him some time at least. Right, Unlike because, Burns and, and Peralta, who well, Peralta was all over the place, and Burns was just getting shelled. Yeah, I mean, Burns was giving up home runs at just a, like a catastrophic rate. Uh, Woodruff's issues early were, if I remember correctly, he had those games where he would allow three base runners, and like all of them would score, and that was kind of his, you know. He had those sort of issues early on where he would have one bad inning and that's where he would give up his runs. And so his ERA wasn't good, uh, but you could sort of see he was dominating and was just sort of getting bit in one case here and there. And that was kind of before we understood that the ball had gone completely nuclear again. So. Yeah. And I mean, we, we've kind of talked about this throughout the season, um, but I guess now in total, um, do we believe that it was a mistake? JP, do you think it's a, it was a mistake to have that much faith in three young starting pitchers to start the season? No, uh, and mostly for 
Well, I, I guess two different reasons. Um, number one, I'm not necessarily sure who the other options were that were going to be attractive. Um, I know a lot of people are going to say Miley, but uh, you know, there's an argument to say that Miley still might have had an opportunity to come to Milwaukee, and he decided he wanted to go to the Astros. And you know what? Who would blame him? He's in a World Series right now. So, uh, and also an he he was terrible at the end of the season. He was terrible at the end of the season, uh, and. You know, and Jordan Lyles too kind of was up and down like we what Jordan Lyles does. So there's not to me a hundred percent, you know, there there isn't say that if you would or why that would have been a far better option than kind of going with their internal. So the uh, the second thing that I think is important is that at some point you have to be able to give all of your young pitchers a chance to fail. Um because well, and there's an argument, I guess, to be said that, you know, maybe you only give two instead of three a chance. Uh, but I think largely the Brewers had an internal option in somebody like Chase Anderson and Freddie Peralta just kind of pitched his way onto the starting rotation in spring. Like they had other options internally that they didn't have to go with all three. But the other thing that really like there, there was just no way anyone could have foreseen Corbin Burns doing what Corbin Burns did in 2019 like there's just no there was no statistical marker for it there was no kind of rhyme or reason that anything like that was going to happen and so i guess you can kind of chalk it up to like you never know what what young pitchers are going to do but everything that we saw leading up to what you know brandon woodruff was been able to do in 2019 in which he anchored the rotation when he was in it corbin burns was pitching multiple innings out of the bullpen in high leverage situations in september and october last last year too, going into the postseason, and he was absolutely dominant and he's been able to show it throughout his minor league career that he can handle starters workload so to me there was no real reason to go against those things and freddie peralta was always a wild card so i i think that is a lot of it's a lot of the the consternation that comes around trying to build internal pitching is you want the internal young starters to come on through but you also don't want to be patient enough to give them a chance to actually find their feet. And that's just going to be the eternal struggle that happens with fan bases and young pitchers. Um, but well, I, think and I also, I also think the, the outcome for Burns is what I think soured people so much on like somehow the Brewers made a mistake because yeah. if Corbin Burns is just okay, mm -hmm. I don't think it's an outcome that anybody would say, was outside the possibility of what they expected from those three pitchers. It, Corbin Burns being, he kind of is in the rotation. Maybe if you get to the end of the season and you're pushing for a, a, a rotation spots in the playoffs, he doesn't quite make the cut. Like, I don't think anybody would be shocked by that. It was the fact that he was, he, he was unpitchable out of the bullpen. It was Nelson and Burns were the guys who were basically taking it on the chin if the Brewers were out of a game. Yeah, in September. You're talking about. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. We also need to talk about Jimmy Nelson. JP already mentioned Chase Anderson. Chase Anderson would have been in the rotation to start the year had Freddie Peralta not basically won the job over him in spring training. And nobody in their right mind coming into the year wanted Brandon Woodruff or Corbin Burns to not be in the rotation. Everybody wanted those guys to get their shots. So the only kind of sketchy thing that happened in here was that Freddie Peralta and Corbin Burns both failed. 
and that put them in in a tricky position because they only had one backup who now was you ready say to that. go. Hold on. Now, now let's not say Freddie failed in the same way because Freddie became a useful piece for the Brewers. Freddie would go through ups and downs. JP talked about this all sure. year. Yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. Freddie Peralta experience. You would have games where he was absolutely lights out, including he had a bad start his first start, the second game of the season, and then his next start in Cincinnati. He filthy dominated the Reds. Sure. And so, like, he was... But he, he was too volatile to stay in the rotation. That was part of the issue with Peralta. He was a little too volatile for the rotation. And he kind of found a spot in the bullpen. Now, it, it didn't mean he didn't go through other struggles. There were times where we mm -hmm. got bad Freddie coming out of the bullpen. But he turned into a pretty quality bullpen piece for the Brewers down the stretch. And you would think that going forward that he's probably going to be a quality bullpen piece and maybe sneak his way back into the rotation at some point. He's so young. I mean, you're talking about it like a 22, 23-year-old here. He's young, but he's also small, and his repertoire is limited. So, I mean, right. do you think, J.P. Peralta, long-term, he's a bullpen piece and maybe a quality bullpen piece going forward? I think as of now, he's, he's kind of, he has to be. But fortunately for the Brewers, I think he's exactly the kind of bullpen piece that they want. They want to be able to create a bullpen situation in which they have got just probably five or six guys that can go multiple innings really regularly because it gives them the flexibility. It gives them everything that we saw down the stretch in September where they can kind of mix and match and do all of these things. But it also gives them the flexibility, I think, that they see to not have to have as dominant of starters as they would otherwise have to have if they didn't have a quality bullpen that could go multiple innings and cover multiple innings. Because the last thing you want to do if, if you know, this whole bullpenning thing and we start talking about this this scenario in which kind of everybody kind of becomes a bullpen, if you're taking your starters out in the fourth or fifth inning and you don't have guys that can go multiple multiple innings, there's no way that you're going to... There's no way that you're going to be able to sustain a bullpen strategy in which you have five or six guys coming in every night. You can't do it. But no, you can take you, you can have take to have guys like Peralta. You do. There's no question about that. Guys who can give you length and can give you like shutdown length too. And the biggest problem is, of course, is like we can talk about the math all the, all day and say that these things work, but the problem is is if you get bad Freddy and he can't go multiple innings, suddenly then your bullpen day or whatever is just absolutely a train wreck. And it torpedoes what you're going, going to do going forward because you have to use more arms, which is why if the Brewers want to be able to do this, or if they're going to have to use a bullpen in, in this regularly, they need a lot of guys who can go multiple innings. They can't have two or three. They've got to have five or six. Yeah, and Corbin Burns could be that guy in the future. I, I do want to point out about his season, his strikeout rate from 2018 when he was very good to 2019 when he struggled so mightily with the home run ball, it jumped from 8.3 per nine to 12.9 per nine. He was striking out a lot more batters this year, too. I don't think anybody doubts Corbin Burns' stuff, his ability to strike guys out. It was just when guys were making contact – on Corbin Burns, he was getting just lit up. And part of that is, again, he, he has control to keep it in the strike zone, but his ability to locate seemed to be lacking. because he he's just throwing to the wrong parts of the zone. That might be it, too. And yeah, that seems the middle, to be a thing. The middle of the zone. Corbin Burns did not show an ability to throw up in the zone or keep it low in the zone and keep it away from guys, you know. He seems like a textbook guy who needs to be four seamers high, 
curves down and well in his case slider more so but like he he seems to be but he, that guy yeah and yeah he isn't and, doing it yet and he has not shown that yet no. so i again corbin burns has the ability that obviously they're not going to give up on but he is not to that point uh where i think you can trust him going forward we'll see what happens well, and we saw later in the season as well, as Brian got super excited about, he once again kind of turned back to his cutter that he was using in his minor league career or back when he was with St. Mary's in California. And he he has the ability to have multiple pitches. He's not just a fastball slider guy. But yeah, I mean, he's and when you say that he finds himself in the middle of the zone too much, it, it's I mean, sometimes, yeah, he can certainly make mistake pitches. But if you actually look at the the like the the heat the heat map and what he's doing in the zone he is low and away with everything all the time with his fastball he is down in the zone all the time he's trying to work down and away and the biggest thing for me is you know we talk we kind of heard that he was going to go kind of work with the analytics staff to try to to change the spin rate in his fastball or try to get a different kind of spin rate uh working with those kind of things i've heard different things about how his high spin rate for his fastball is a high spin rate, but it's kind of uh, it's a different high speed, uh, high spin rate than somebody like Verlander. Um, it's a little bit more like a gyro ball uh, kind of goes sideways, which keeps it a little bit straighter, is a, a little bit easier for guys to be able to center up on. And again, if that's down in the zone, that's not necessarily ideal um, up in the zone. It's not ideal either, which is why I think that they've been working on some stuff. But if if he can get a cutter to match up with a more sweeping slider or you know curveball um and the four seamer that's going to give him another look that'll keep guys off off balance and it'll give him another weapon that he can use against lefties which is a big thing as you alluded to he was down at the pitching lab the brewer's new facility that was set up to be able to do this stuff and he worked on that in uh late august early september and you can hope that he can find something with pitchers especially it can often be just like a slight tweak in how they hold the ball on a given pitch. It's little things sometimes that can make huge amounts of difference, especially for a guy that clearly has as much raw talent as he does. There's clearly a lot of good there. You don't accidentally strike out 12.3 per nine. So there's a lot to work with. The question is figuring out that the little tweaks that need to be made to get it to all work. And he's definitely the kind of guy you want to have around under team control. And they can still, he can be an up and down guy again this year if they need to still do that and that's fantastic you you want those guys around because it's so so hard you look at like what the market this winter is going to be and i was just talking to, to somebody on twitter about this you're looking at somebody like zach wheeler with his uh, health history the way it is and the performance history being you know it's good but it's not fantastic otherworldly he's had moments where he's been closer to the prospect that people expected him to be and he people are talking about him getting like four years and 80 million yeah i mean so it's so expensive yes to get and i want to i want to move on because we're supposed to recap the season and i think we've been doing uh corbin burns now for about an hour so um and we haven't even gotten to the most exciting part of the season is when keston hero finally got called up this year and i think all of twitter exploded or brewer's twitter at that time exploded well i mean he was called up fairly early he was called up relatively. They waited long enough. I think they were past the whole like. Well, there was oh, all they were well the, past the debate the... of will he be a super two and all that kind of stuff, which was kind of dumb. Um, but again, a lot of it had to do with just the fact that Jesus Aguilar and Travis Shaw was, were struggling so much, and the Brewers needed production beyond Christian Yelich 
and Mike Moustakis at, and uh, Yismani, Yismani Grandal in yeah. the lineup. They were really, those three were carrying the offense early and they needed more than that because even Lorenzo Cain got kind of uh, beat up a little bit early in the season and it dogged him throughout all of 2019. He wasn't the hitter he had been in the past. Still a great defender though. That's fine, but he was not hitting the way he had uh, the season prior. So, um, Kesson here comes up and he starts hitting right away for the most part. I think he had a rough like first game literally, and after that the guy hit. So, uh, JP, what was it about Kesson Hira that I guess allowed him to adapt so quickly to major league pitching? Uh, largely his knowledge of the zone and and just how quick his bat is. His, I mean, his ability, his hit tool has been even when he kind of was drafted by the Brewers in that draft class, he was seen as the best hitter, like the best pure hitter. He was. Everybody has never had a single, or, or nobody has had a a worry about his ability to hit at the major league level coming through. It's because he's quick in the zone. It's because he's got the ability to to handle big league velocity because of his bat speed. He's got a knowledge of the zone to understand what he can hit and what he can't hit. And yes, as he's faced better pitchers, you know, turns out they can still make a guy as good as Kesson Hira still swing and miss. So it's he's not perfect, but it's a really positive kind of comment about how everybody in the scouting community looked at this guy and said that he was an absolute elite hitter and then came up and hit right away and the frustrating part was you know the the i know we're kind of like looking at kesson here as this guy that we've been talking about for a lot of years but in in may they I mean, they could have used him in April, much less May. And the fact that he wasn't up and then he did hit and then ended up getting sent back down. You had there were comments from uh, Brewers. I think it was Chase Anderson. Either in the summer or late in the summer. I can't remember exactly when the interview was, but they talked to him about like when Keston Hero was sent down. And he goes, he was basically like, yeah, we didn't really we didn't really get that. Um, And it was something in which a lot of team, a lot of guys in the clubhouse were like, we all understood how good he was and we knew that he belonged here. And when he was sent back down, we didn't really get it. Well, and again, I think that goes back to, I think there was, there was some justification. Some people try to justify Kesson here getting sent down. Some people, <laughs> I'm not calling anyone out. So there was some justification that like, Oh, you're going to upset the clubhouse. If you keep Kesson here up because Travis Shaw won't get his at bats or Jesus Aguilar is going to lose at bats because you have that right-handed batter that you need, you know, that Aguilar was supposed to be. So I guess, uh, Ryan, if you want to talk about, did they, well, no, 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 I, I'm not going to call you out on that. I don't think I have to. Everybody knows what your view of uh, view on that was. Do you think that they waited too long to pull the ripcord on Aguilar and Shaw or Shaw, I guess? Maybe a little bit, probably by a, a week or two. Cause we started talking about it like about a week before it happened, maybe two weeks before where it was kind of like, yeah, we should get Keston Hero back up here because they clearly need the extra bat in the lineup. They were struggling through a very awful June schedule where they, it was their soft month that they had and they were struggling through that month. Yeah. It was 12 and 12. They were 12 and 12. It was the pirates, the Marlins, which they dropped that. They dropped the Marlins and the Giants series, Mm -hmm. which I want to say, if you look back, the only moments that both of those uh clubs had that were good was like basically that three weeks or something like that, that. cluster yeah right that there. they played the brewers the brewers seemed to to get a couple 
pretty shitty teams in their only like hot stretches in the season, it seemed. Yeah. Well, and then on the back end of it in September, they played a bunch of shitty teams and destroyed them. Yeah, so. they got to make hay on it. So yeah. it, it evened out. Yeah. But yeah, I the thing was, and it still bears, we'll be talking about this ton throughout this offseason, the idea that you don't want to run away from guys like Travis Shaw and Jesus Aguilar coming off of the two seasons that they just had always that always made sense there was nothing inherently stupid about that it turned out not to have worked for this season right like it turned out that that didn't that didn't well hold end on up a second dividends right now hold on a second jp d- did you see travis shaw and jesus aguilar as two players who were on similar footing because i from my view it seemed like shaw had a little bit of a longer track record because he, he at least was a full-time player who had a couple good seasons jesus aguilar the season before had half a year where he was great and the other half where he was, you know, playable at first base. Sure. Well, my my argument from the beginning was not that, you know, Aguilar or Shaw didn't deserve to be in the big leagues. It was at some point you have to make a decision as an organization. And there's nothing about an extra two weeks that gives you more information about what kind of decision you need to make. And Aguilar was always going to be the easier person to end up replacing either via free agency or the waiver wire because Right-handed only platoon first basemen aren't exactly in high demand. And we saw that with, you know, Tyler Austin coming on up as well in in September that you can find those pieces. I mean, you've seen uh, you've seen teams like the Rays, which is where Aguilar ended up going. But you also seen like the the A's as well. You can always find right-handed platoon bats. I mean, Johnny Combs made his career on very, very low wages, like comparatively low wages to his production over the long period of time, just being a right, just being a right-handed dude who could absolutely mash lefties. Yeah, and and Aguilar, even though he started to hit a little better in Tampa Bay, the power never came back. And hold on, though, guys, one second here. The problem is, is that Jesus Aguilar was a legitimate all-star the year before. Like, he was legitimately in the all-star game and was really good. You hold, don't on see, hold on a second. You don't see too wait, many teams wait, wait, cutting. Wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You don't see too many teams flat-out cutting or just shipping out, like, a guy who was as good as Jesus Aguilar was in 2018. Jesus Aguilar had an excellent first half of 2018. And he was and fine in the ex- second half. He was fine. But you're talking about him well, like he had an all-star season. No, he yeah. was he was an all-star because he had an excellent first half of the season. So, you know, there are people who argue that, you know, one-half players shouldn't necessarily be all-star players because and, that isn't representative of who the best players are. And, I mean, and there are, oh, there are two things. Number one, he was fine in the second half. He was absolutely fine. You don't, if you're going to end up doing a situation at first base in which you have to basically play him as a platoon first baseman and he's fine that's not worth keeping um and second of all just because you move him on doesn't mean he can't be a big league guy the entire point of having depth and a a lot of really good players is sometimes you move on from guys that can have success elsewhere and sometimes you have to make a decision you can't just always kick the can down the road at all times just because you're afraid of potentially losing somebody that can be a contributor and they and they did make that decision they made it a few weeks later than i think people would have liked they made that decision later than what people preferred but they did ultimately make that decision we're talking about you know keston here came back up what in early july like he came back up at you know or no it was late june he was back up in late june so he was 
he was down for like three and a half, four weeks in June. Yeah. In a time and, that they were struggling, though. In a time that they could have used his bat. My entire point is that because uh, between late May and late June, you learned nothing more about either Shaw uh, or Aguilar that like made that worthwhile. But it's not a question of just learning things. It's also a question of giving of a guy a chance to play into a hot streak, getting a guy to give a chance to to right the ship. And you can't just expect a guy to. Uh, and let's not pretend. Well, like hold, with on, hold on. Hold on. Now Travis Shaw. Too. Travis Shaw has had a lot of chances to play back into a hot streak. He had a lot of chances this year, and he was really good in the was, minors. Everybody was good in the minors. Again, we've talked about this. We all probably could have hit a home run in the minors this year. Okay, <laughs> in could, AAA, I you, couldn't. Have. You could have run into one. I think. I, 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 I think I could, bunts I, were clearing the infield, so I, I think could, you could have run into one. I could have run one over the 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 outfield. Yeah, yeah. I could have just grabbed it and just run and just been like, yeah. There you go. Right. But, uh, but JP, at, at this point, I mean, with that many opportunities for Shaw, it, I mean, what do you see from him going forward in in twenty twenty? I, I to be honest, I have no idea. Um, and the, and we talked about this last week. I I honestly I have no idea. Uh, but I I and I apologize for dwelling on the point. I understand that there is a way in which both of these guys could have eventually played themselves onto a, a hot streak in which they could have justified the the weight. But the key is, is you're not looking for somebody to hit their way onto a hot streak so you can avoid making a decision by calling somebody up. The entire point was your best hitter out of the three was in the minors because you were afraid to make a decision and you wanted somebody to give you an excuse that you could move on from the other person. And what ended up happening was Eric Thames actually started to be the one who played really well and made it a problem. Well, and he gave them the room that they eventually needed to essentially relegate Aguilar to the bench almost full time and to then move on from him completely at the trade deadline. Yeah. So anyways, it was interesting because this year after a, a pretty mediocre June when we all thought the Brewers were going to make some hay, uh, they, they still kind of muddled their way through July. They weren't great, and, but they were hanging around enough that nobody said like, well, they're also out of it at the same time. They spent most of their their season like on the positive side. I don't know that they ever actually fell below 500. No, they got within a couple of games. I think you have the note. They were 68 and 66 on August 30th. Right. But they, they, have- they spent most of their summer like two or three games above 500 sure yeah yeah no they were a good enough team that they they built enough of a pad that even if they had some rougher stretches they weren't in like danger of well they never had like a a, you know a 10 and 20 run no 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 no. so anyways you know they they kind of muddled their way through june as well um and it was an interesting trade deadline you know jp they went out and they traded for um pomerantz and black they gave up um mauricio dubon mauricio dubon who everybody's going to, you know, wring their hands about since uh, Orlando Arcia struggled. Um, and I know there, you know, we talked about it at the time. It was an odd approach to the trade deadline. Yeah, I mean, basically what they decided to do was to add depth to their pitching staff. They decided to go around and, and add around the edges where I think what people wanted, especially, you know, before you had those those three injuries. Remember in the week before the trade deadline, you had Brandon Woodruff go down and it ended up being for two plus months. You had Yuli Shasin pitch his last innings for the Brewers. We didn't know that at the time, but he was gone. There, who there had no struggled problem. with injuries earlier? Who had struggled off and on? Yeah, and had just been ineffective generally. 
And then Gio Gonzalez also got hurt that Friday. Now it turned out he only like, he missed like half a, a turn in the rotation, but we didn't know that at the time when they were making like the moves on the trade deadline, we didn't know what Gio's situation was even going to be. So you had all of that clouding the situation where they needed maybe instead of going out and adding like a top flight piece, they all of a sudden needed depth. They had to add guys but did to they, fill up hold the roster. On. But JP, did they end up adding a top flight piece in Pomerantz out of the bullpen? Because he was excellent for them. Yeah, I actually, I still don't think they would have made the postseason without Pomerantz. He ended up being fantastic. And basically what they did is they took, I mean, frankly, they took a gamble on a dude who had pitched five, five innings out of the bullpen. And they said, well, this guy, I think, is somebody that can be an absolute rock star. And, you know, five innings isn't generally something I feel comfortable making a decision about, but they didn't have the luxury to wait. And they ended up moving a legitimately good piece that I think also would have helped them in August and September if they would have uh, kept him in in Dubon. But Pomeranz ended up being an absolute rock star. Um, Well, and let's not sleep on Jordan Lyles either. I mean, he put up a a 2.45 ERA in 58 innings. He was as good as any starter that they he performed as well as any starter that they could have gone out and traded for on the market. He just was a, a very low risk move that nobody expected anything from. I don't even remember who they traded for Jordan Lyles, to be honest. Yeah, it was uh, Cody Ponce. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Cody Ponce finds success in, in Pittsburgh. I feel like you guys have had podcasts in the past before this one that you're talking about Cody Ponce, weren't you? I feel like we've been talking about Cody Ponce for a very long time. It's been at least a decade. Yeah, and he, I think, I think he does have like a a, a future as a potential multi inning reliever, kind of in the mold of. I thought you were going to say he's going to be the new, new Joe Thatcher. No, that's a, I'm I, who every year he gets he somehow pops up in a MLB trade deadlines article, and then we have to like note that he's still around. Yeah, no one, no one is claiming that giving up Drew Pomerantz was like some massive overpay for Jordan Lyles, and it'll be interesting. Drew to see Pomerantz. You mean Cody Ponce? Yeah, Cody Ponce. Yeah, <laughs> eh, whatever. Um, I was gonna say the the most interesting thing for me about Jordan Lyles is he had a he had a fantastic April and then started to break down basically late May through uh, July. I mean, in July he had a, an ERA over eleven and he was allowing uh, opposing hitters to hit three eighty eight over the course of that month and just was absolutely getting pumped. And suddenly makes his way to the Brewers and has a sub three ERA through through August and September. He was a great piece for them down the stretch. Do you they think that? Well, do, remember do what you David think, Stern said about him. Hold on. At the, when they made the trade, they said, no, a you hold on. <laughs> they said a couple things. One, they said, we think he was getting somewhat unlucky during that run of like nine starts or whatever with Pittsburgh where he was getting thrashed, which I think, yeah, 388 batting average in this era. Well. But also, like, a, nobody sees a dude get an 11 ERA over the course of a month and says he probably deserves that. Sure, there's also that. But then there's also the other side of this, which was they said we also see some small tweaks, and it would be very interesting to know exactly what those little well, things were. I mean, is it tweaks, or do you think the Brewers also are just able to say we know that this guy can get through the lineup once or twice, and we have the bullpen to basically float him after that? Yeah, and I mean to be fair, I I think that that's that's a legitimate. Uh, I think they probably did make some tweaks. I'm not 100 percent sure what they are, but there's probably they probably did. I don't doubt that. Um, I also think they probably recognized that they had the bullpen to be able to kind of float him a little bit. And then I think there's also a way that we just need to recognize the fact that you know his FIP 
in August and September was, you know, on the on the north side of three uh, of four fifty. Like, yeah, I mean, he had a sub three ERA and his FIP was about uh, between August and September was about, you know, like four, six, four, seven. Like he was better than than planned um, and he was better than maybe, quote unquote, he should have been. And I do, that doesn't mean he didn't pitch well. It doesn't mean that he wasn't a key piece for the Brewers going down. Doesn't mean it wasn't a, a good trade. Like it, but you know, it's what we talked about last year as well, in which the Brewers kind of outplace, uh, outpaced their their pitching differentials. And then you know we got to 2019, and the pitching wasn't as good, and everyone was like, "Well, it's because Derek Johnson went away." And you're like, "Well, also they weren't as good as maybe they should have been in 2018, and things change." And so also, be- Jordan Lyle started to show some limitations at the end of the season. He did not pitch through the end of September well. Like he had some bad starts there at the end. I mean, he had the start in Colorado, I think. Eh, I want to say there were a couple. I don't have it up in front of me. I thought he had a couple of rougher starts. At the end, that's not saying that Jordan Lyles was bad. They got no. a lot of uh, production out of him. Um, but again, Pomerantz was truly the breakout, though, as JP was saying. Like that Pomerantz seemed like the guy. Like maybe you could bank on that being something that could, you know, go into seasons following 2019 if he can stay mean, healthy. Sure, which is a trick for him. Well, but he also hasn't pitched out of the bullpen full time right. ever in his career, and right. I don't know how much that'll make a difference. Um, so anyways, yeah. So again, the Brewers get through August, they're 68 and 66 after a series in Chicago that was on August 30th. And then everything turns around in September. Apparently Craig Timber is truly magical. Yeah. I mean, from there on out, it was what? 21 and seven. Yeah. So it, it wasn't like they make these trades at the deadline. Um, you know, they get Pomerantz, they get Lyles, you know, they get Black, uh, they get Faria in the bullpen as well. Well, Faria was in the minors and then called up to the bullpen. He was he was up and down a few times, but didn't distinguish himself. They got more arms. Um, it's not like things immediately turned around, but all of a sudden, September, the, the switch just turns on and the Brewers catch fire. Yeah, I mean, it was a combination of they played some good teams early. Because people forget, they talk about the soft ending to the schedule, and it was. Those last four series were cupcakes. But, well, except for Colorado, who turned out not to be. But that's another issue. Well, that was a cupcake for a team that knew where their spot was in the postseason. Right. They had already clinched, and the gamesmanship had started at that point. But, yeah, at any rate, there was, uh, early on in that run, they played the Cubs a couple times. And they played the Cardinals. I was going to say, the teams that weren't cupcakes were teams that they had to beat directly. Mm-hmm. And they did. They, For the most part, I think they took three out of four from the Cubs, and they took two out of three from the Cardinals in that span. So they took care of their business, and they did what they had to do, and then really fattened up on the soft schedule at the end. So it was it was really, really something. And I think the thing that will always stick with people about this season is people will wonder, well, what if Yelich hadn't gotten hurt? Because that's the, that's the thing that seemed to, even though they were able to continue winning afterwards in the regular season, they were able to push their way into the postseason when everybody figured they were going to be done. Right? Like everybody wrote them off. I, every national person I heard discuss them at that point. We're like, yeah, well, okay, of course they're done now. And they weren't. But it did limit what they were going to do in the postseason. Like sure. Not I having Yelich was always going to be a problem. Uh, JP, do you think Yelich somehow gets the Brewers what they need? Two more wins? 
two more wins to catch the Cardinals. I mean, that's a tall ask as far as like what that September was. How much Yelich would have done in the final, what was he out, two weeks or three weeks? Uh, Yelich was out the last three weeks. I think he went down on like the 11th. I mean, it, it is a tall ask, but, uh, you know, the dirty secret of September was that the Brewers offense was like really bad through almost all of it. I mean, they were they were one of the worst in the NL. Uh, I mean, they hit in, in September. I was just looking it up. They hit 232 um, with a 328 batting or on base percentage and a 4 422 slugging percentage. And their weighted uh, runs created plus. So like it kind of league average, league average is 100. Anything less, you know, is a is kind of a percentage worse than league average was was 94. So they're six percent worse than the league average offense in September. And I think that Yelich absolutely would have made that better. Um, so JP what- says that the Brewers go undefeated the final three weeks <laughs> if Christian Yelich is in the lineup, which is an interesting take. Yeah, I do think I don't think that they probably wouldn't have lost in the in the postseason either. I mean, that game against the Nationals. Well, yeah. And your point, though, is if they'd won a couple more games, they wouldn't have necessarily. Been I mean, in that it would have been interesting. The OK, they had some close games against the Rockies right at the end of the season. They did when they needed to win to basically keep pace with the Cardinals. It would have been interesting if Yelich would have been in the lineup. It, yeah, especially in Colorado. You just wonder, like, was he going to have a game where he, you know, hit three bombs and, like, carried them over the the Yeah, because they lost line. one in extra innings. I mean, they basically punted that final game. They did late, yeah. I mean, they didn't start that they way, were, but they once the that, Cardinals, because the Cardinals pounded the Cubs that was that a day, spring so. training game. They were taking guys out by, like, the fifth inning. As soon as it became clear that the Cardinals were – killing the cubs yeah, yeah they were done so it would it would have been interesting if, if they if maybe that would have been the series that yelich ultimately would have made a difference in i mean it's hard to say it is hard to say you're saying like here are three specific games where he would have had to have been the main factor well, to we're change. also acting like trent grisham didn't do anything in his place which trent grisham did actually have some really big moments in well, september and i guess that that gets us to that part is uh, was there something about trent grisham in september was there something he showed you that um, I think going forward in 2020, you see him as more of a building block for this team than you initially expected. Because again, Grisham really was a pop-up prospect this season after being a guy who completely fell off the radar. So JP, what is Trent Grisham in 2020? What's his role on this team? I think he's probably going to be the fourth outfielder to start. Uh, I don't see a way that he's going to come in and be be a guy that's going to absolutely come in and, and step into the... I mean, because he... he was a useful piece for them absolutely in September, but um, he wasn't great. He didn't hit for any power. He didn't hit for any average whatsoever. He was able to hit. He was able to draw some walks, but I mean, he hit 235. Uh, his slugging percentage was 388 in September, but he was able to draw a lot of walks. He struck out quite a bit. And the biggest concern that we kind of had been talking about was, is he a little bit too passive in the zone? Is he able to attack pitches that he can do something with? And we saw throughout his course of the year in in the minors that he was able to do damage. And when he came up, it was kind of showing that he was kind of doing it again in the big leagues. And then as it kind of went along, he, you know, opposing pitchers uh, adjusted and he was able to still not chase too many pitches he was still able to take a lot of walks and and kind of high up in the the Brewers batting order we saw it against the Nationals didn't he like didn't he 
draw like a leadoff walk or something to, mm-hmm. to he was get, the batter he was the runner on base when grendall hit the home run yeah and so you know being able to get on base is is still good um but he was not an impact bat down down the stretch and so i i don't think he's played himself into a situation in which we're going to look at him as a replacement for ryan braun he might you know he's going to probably uh split time with braun or he's going to see some time at all three outfield positions i don't i wouldn't really uh argue with that but i also think that ben gamble has also kind of played his way into still being a, a viable guy and having 26 guys on the roster is going to make room for both of those i was going to say next year there's different roster rules basically yeah and they probably will mandate my guess is they're going to limit it to 13 pitchers maybe they go 14 but if they go 13 that means 13 position players which means yeah you're kind of back to that old that old school mentality where you have a backup catcher two backup infielders and two backup outfielders you know, five man bench, whereas it had drifted down to more of a three and four man bench over the last few years. One thing I'll say about Grisham, I think in terms of where he stands for next year, I think he can push for more playing time. And it will be one thing to really watch in spring training is how much do they try to push Ryan Braun towards first base? And we'll see, depending on what they do in the offseason, I think we think there's a pretty good chance they're going to bring back Eric Thames. But if they don't, uh, could Ryan Braun go there full time? I don't know if that's necessarily a thing, but if Thames is brought back, you're going to want somebody who's a right-handed bat to platoon with him. And Ryan Braun seems like a natural fit for that, which would then open up a lot of playing time do we, in the outfield. For do we get Ryan Christian. Braun at first base 2.0 next season? Uh, look, I, I was wrong about it late in the year, so I have to give myself another shot. So, so we'll see. I'll just say I was a year off like I was with Zach Davies. Um, but, <laughs> We will. the The biggest thing for me is yes, that does make some sense. But again, Grisham being left-handed. So even if you do say that Braun is going to move to first base against left-handed pitching to be able to platoon, then saying that like Grisham coming in as a left-handed bat isn't necessarily like a great upgrade. He he certainly wasn't terrible against lefties, but I'm not sure that's a massive, massive upgrade there. But I think the other thing that happened in September is. You had Moustakis struggling with some injuries, um, and he wasn't very good at the plate whatsoever um, in September. And then you had Keston Hero. What was it? A, was it a hamstring injury? Or yeah, nobody was healthy at the end of the year. Thames and was banged up. Kane was very banged up. Winning in September made no sense. And no, it didn't. Right? It was like you know you had your course, you had your Spangenberg home run at exactly the right time, and you had Tyler the, Austin heroics. Yeah, you had Tyler Austin heroics. You had. Uh, I don't even remember, like, wasn't it Orlando Arcia had a couple of, like, really big hits as well, even mm-hmm. though he hit 13 throughout the course of September? I mean, let's it, be honest. Basically, everybody contributed at key moments in that September run. Absolutely. But it really, it was the pitching that carried them through that month, because the pitching yeah. was legitimately stellar in that month. It was. It was stellar. But my my point, kind of even when we were talking about the podcast in, in September, it was like, yeah, the pitching has been great. And yes, it is wonderful to see different people contributing over the course of it. But like it's it there is a little bit of fortune to say like the one hit that, you know, Corey Spangenberg is going to get over four games happens to be in the eighth inning when there are two people on and it's a home run. And then he doesn't hit anything for like two more days. Um, also, I, I hate to say it, but uh, Steve, your boy Aaron Ampera has only hit 167. His on-base percentage was 164, and he ended up playing 19 games that month. That month, it was rough. What but he hit it? two dingers. What was his ERA that month? <laughs> I bet you his FIP was fantastic. Because you know he just contributes in all aspects of the game, literally. 
compared to other guys when they say that. Including beefcake photos? Including beefcake photos. You can't I was looking it. it up. It didn't he he didn't pitch in September. I thought he got innings in September. Do. Well, you know, if you think about it, in September they have plenty of actual pitchers. They don't need to turn to a Hernan Perez. Well, I'm trying to remember where he got the extra plus two innings to uh basically beat the prop bet. I think it was in August. Was it in August? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, I will say that Aaron Perez, well, he had one inning. He gave up a run though in the second half. So he had one inning in the second half. He had a not it like his yeah, it wasn't great. Gave up a home run. Well, it's you know, the ball was juiced, so you can't really blame that all on him. Fair so. point. Not absolutely a fair point. Okay, so we have a, a Patreon question from Michael Heitkamp. He asked and it's a long question with a lot of sub questions. Mm-hmm. A lot of qualifiers in here. Uh, in hindsight, who regressed or stagnated in a way you didn't expect? What were some signs you missed? Uh, are there reasons for optimism with uh, a player like this? Uh, similar question, but for who progressed in a way you didn't expect? And were there any signs you missed uh, that they would take a step forward? Any cause for concern moving forward with this player? So I guess we'll just pick our guy. Who is your big regression player? Why? And then who's your big like breakout player and also why? Yeah, I mean, my regression guy would be Travis Shaw because coming off of the seasons he had in 2017 and 2018 where he was legitimately a very good player and there didn't seem to be any indication of this coming uh, last year or early like in spring training or whatever. And it it just seemed to be one of those cases where he got off to a bad start and then was never able to quite right the ship, right? He just, he he got stuck in like a negative uh, frame and just was never able to push his way out of it. And he, yeah, there's always been issues with strikeouts with Travis Shaw. That's part of the deal, but it's also part of the deal with most players in, in 2018, 2019. So that doesn't seem to be a particular issue. And as we talked about last week, when he was in the minors, he did hit. So it's not like he just completely forgot how to play baseball. So I think that I don't know what kind of warning signs you could have looked at other than to say maybe like the Casey McGee idea, like a guy who breaks out unexpectedly. And even if they put up a couple of good but even years, Travis, like McGee did. Travis Shaw had more pedigree behind him than Casey McGee ever had. He did. Yeah. McGee had two really good seasons in uh, what was it? Eight or nine and ten. And then in 11 was absolutely terrible. Shaw had more pedigree coming into Milwaukee, but we didn't even necessarily expect him to be a a long-term piece when he showed up in Milwaukee. It was kind of an open question, and he did turn into one, and that was a, a huge positive. But So maybe you just don't put that much stock in a guy that you didn't expect that much out of at okay. the beginning. Guy who took a step forward. Well, come back to me. We'll do the. Oh, you want yeah. you want to go? Okay, I was going to go everybody through their answers, but JP, who's who's your regression guy that you were really surprised by? Yeah, I, I think for Shaw, the most interesting thing for me was you know the fact that yeah, you could say that we had no idea that this was going to be happening, but again, he was awesome, and he was doing extremely. He was hitting for power. He was on a huge hot streak to to begin spring training, and then just like the wheels fell apart. And the biggest thing for me was number one when they were asking Shaw about it, he was just kind of like, "Yeah, man, I don't know, I don't know." And then they sent him down, and and you could see that he was pushing. You could see that he was annoyed by all the questions, and 
how much of it was. And, you know, I mentioned this last week, so I don't want to get into it too much, but like how much did he just like need an off season to just completely reset and just have an opportunity to come back with a fresh slate next year? I mean, he would be. Yeah. If that dude's into fishing, he needs to go fishing for like two weeks and just not even think about baseball. And we saw uh, like his first debut with Boston. He came in and performed really well. And his next year, he didn't do well at all. And then he ended up coming in again and and performing quite well again. Yeah, and that's just it's part of the mystery of Travis Shaw at this point. I don't think we have a good answer and we're going to have to see what the team decides to do because they have a five million dollar decision to make with him if they want to go that direction or if they want to try something else. So, yeah, and I mean, I don't have too much to add because really it is Shaw. It does seem to be he's the mystifying one. Even if we want to go with the Corbin Burns or Jesus Aguilar, um, I mean, I think what we saw from Orlando Arcia and his struggles aren't anything that we should have been shocked by. Well, no, because we saw it in 2018 as well. Yeah, so. we, we hoped that maybe 18 was the aberration, but you know, maybe that is closer to the new normal and it's only a juiced ball that's going to kind of float Orlando Arcia's offense for a little bit. So um, I guess uh, who is... Who broke out the season that you, you were just shocked by, Ryan? I mean, it's got to be Trent Grisham because I wasn't shocked by what Keston Hira did. Like, he was very good, and he was maybe, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily pegged him to be as good as he was right away because few players break in that good. But we were expecting him to be good, and th- so this isn't really shocking. It's maybe just a little quick. Trent Grisham coming out of nowhere, basically a oh, uh, uh, pretty close to being a failed prospect coming into the season. Like it was getting very close to that point. And then to put up the season he did and play meaningful, good baseball down the stretch. Super, super impressive. So he uh, was what you always wanted Corey Ray to be. So uh, JP, who, who do you have for your um, breakout breakout player this year that you were surprised by? I mean, in some ways it's, it's kind of a cop out, but it's, it's Drew Pomeranz in some way. I know that his breakout wasn't with the Brewers, but I'd, even when they traded for him, there was just no real sense for what he was going to be. And kind of in the week coming up into the the trade deadline, it was rumored that teams were all of a sudden in on Pomeranz because he had looked so good in a couple of bullpen outings. And it was like, okay, well, you know, that could be a flyer on something. Uh, they, they'll save some salary. But he was able to come in and, and just be uh, utterly dominant, which was a huge, huge benefit for, for the Brewers. I think the other guy that was able to be somewhat of a breakout piece that I wasn't necessarily expecting to the extent, um, I mean, to be frank, is 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 Chase Anderson. I don't think anybody would have expected Chase Anderson to be somebody that was able to come in and just be one of the best and most consistent pitchers for the Brewers across, uh, across it. Like, we've seen him have success in the past. We've seen him be able to carry the ball every fifth day. Like, it's not a breakout in terms of saying, like, he's never done it before. But I think if you were to ask a Brewers fan who would have been the most likely pitcher to to kind of carry the team over the course of 162 games in the starting rotation, I don't think Chase Anderson would have been in the top five for anyone. No, but I think I mean, we've seen it, though, so it well, doesn't shock me. But I know part of people, Chase, part of what Chase Anderson did and how important it was is because Brandon Woodruff got hurt. And let's be honest, Brandon Woodruff being the ace of the staff, I think, is a significant piece for this team. That was a big breakout. Yeah, that yeah. he was well, not only 
a, a solid pitcher because I think a lot of us thought, you know, like, oh, he could be, you know, a four three kind of guy in the rotation. So is that your guy then as Brandon Woodruff? Brandon Woodruff would be my guy as, yeah. you know, he was Brandon Woodruff was, I, I think, what we had hoped that Jimmy Nelson could be coming back. Well, I think it was what we hoped Corbin Burns was going to be. Like we thought that what Woodruff did is what, uh, yeah, what Burns was going to give them. So yeah, well, but like I said, I think there was always hope that Jimmy Nelson would come back after all of the the time rehabbing, and he would be closer to the Jimmy Nelson who, you know, pre injury, mm-hmm. which he, he clearly never got to. Brandon well, and- Brandon Woodruff is closer to that pitcher. And I will. I just want to give a, a shout out to. I don't think he's like the breakout guy for the uh, the course of the entire year. But Brent Suter being as good as he was after coming back from Tommy John surgery was notable. I mean, he was an absolute lockdown piece in the bullpen. Yeah, and he is a big part of what they're going to be doing next year. And we don't know if it's going to be in the bullpen, in the rotation, or both. But I think probably both. I think we'll probably see him do both things at some point. I mean, he he has a place. Oh, he just has a role. And it, it's basically whatever role you need him in. If it's being a guy who can be a quality short starter, I mean, would you call him that? I and and that's not as a slight, but you don't leave, you know, Suter in there to to pitch, you know, three times through the. Order. Yeah, he's he's not going to pitch seven innings. He's probably not going to pitch six innings, but he can give you four, maybe five, really good innings. And I think and his ideal is, you know, two to three innings twice a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be the way the Brewers line up their pitching staff that is really, really valuable. It's something that they need from someone. Yeah. So I think overall, I think what we saw this year is the Brewers kind of hit about their expectation, and it was in a way that none of us expected. Which is kind of you know how these things tend to go, right? Is the the Pakoda rankings and and all that stuff, which I think Pakoda was right on, wasn't it? Weren't they about eighty nine, maybe eighty seven, eighty eight? I mean, they're always conservative, so I think they were like 84 to 86, something like that. But, I mean, the the top team in the division was close, you know, 89-ish. So, But but it always is kind of that way where there's so many moving parts in a baseball team and there's so much fluctuation, much more than we think, from season to season. And, you know, if if you had told me before the season that Christian Yelich was going to be a legit MVP and probably would have won the award had he been able to finish out September. Because Which he Bellinger still could. Win. He could still, but you, probably not. I would imagine Bellinger, as a guy who hasn't won it, being in L.A., he's not undeserving. No, he's not undeserving, and Yelich didn't finish the season. and so. But if he had, I think he might have passed him because Bellinger was not great in September. So you have that. Like If you had told me before the season that he was going to do that, yeah, I would have bumped my expectations up even higher, but then there were all these other things that happened, all the negatives we talked about that we didn't see coming as well. You know, Travis Shaw, Corbin Burns, all these guys that... Like I said, they did it in a way we didn't expect, so it was was an interesting one to watch. And what we said about the Brewers before the season was the fact that they had an extremely volatile team. They had... uh, Every single one of their players had huge, huge air bars in terms of being... You could see a scenario in which they were unplayable, and you could see a scenario in which they were excellent. Obviously, you know, with Yelich, there's not really a a way you could see him being unplayable, but uh, the Brewers, I think, kind of played that out, and they've continuously bet on the fact that depth is going to be a strategy that is more important than having... um, you know, 25 really good players. I was going to say, is that an underrated way to build a team then is if you have a lot of guys who have 
relatively high ceilings, you collect enough of those guys, you're probably going to have some success, right? Maybe. I think that probably limits the high end of what you can do. Um, but I think it's it's a way to be able to manage on uh, certainly not a shoestring budget, but on a, on a budget that's not necessarily as high. And, and you see teams across the league now trying to do the same. The Diamondbacks are trying to do it. The Rays have been trying to do it for a long time. The Dodgers have been doing it to a higher, a higher end for a long time. The Astros are doing this in some ways. Uh, the Yankees have been doing this. It's just keep as many players on your roster as much as possible. Keep guys in the minors longer than they should be kick cans down the road as much as they can be. And I mean, like the Yankees had Clint Frazier, who was a legitimate, you know, major league starting outfielder. They had him in the minors where he just was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And the Yankees were like, yeah, well, we got a lot of guys. So you're the one we can put there. And it's, it's a tough situation, but like in terms of winning baseball team, uh, baseball games over 162 games, it's a way to be able to to mitigate a lot of volatility. Yeah. So, um, it, like I said, fun season. Uh, we'll see what happens in 2020. Obviously, we have a lot of time to discuss what the moves are going to be and everything that's going on there. So, uh, hey, we do have a new patron this week. We want to give a shout out to JP. You want to do the the shout for this? Uh, a shout out to to Matthew uh, Van Van Huvelin. That's what my guess. Uh, but I apologize, Matthew, if I absolutely butchered your last name. This is my favorite part of the pod, by the way, it's, is when when we're pronouncing like German names. JP's oh, got a German name to pronounce. That's that's is that German? Van who? Van, oh, it, what like, is it? What is it, Ryan? Hold on. I, Since you're just giving I'm him a hard even, time with I'm that, I'm not what even was looking it? at it. I'm not. My even. my guess is that it's either Dutch or uh, Belgian. Yeah, you're but, probably right. It's it's low countries. It, hold on, Ryan's trying to get to the uh, the rundown right now. He had his fantasy football team scores up. But I, I believe it'd be Van Hoovalen. Yeah, this is definitely, like, probably Dutch. Uh, yeah, Van Hoovalen. <laughs> yes. What is it? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I apologize, anyway, JP. An absolutely huge shout out to Matthew. I apologize for absolutely butchering your name. I don't necessarily apologize on behalf of Ryan because it made Steve laugh, and that was excellent. Um, but it, it's a, absolutely good to have you aboard. Hope you enjoy. My guess is that you're coming aboard for the Packers content. Hopefully you enjoy it. But if you give us a, if you give us a shout on the Brewer side too, that's great. Yeah. So uh, again, thanks for joining. Anyone else who wants to join, you can visit our Patreon at m- Patreon.com/slash/mketailgate. Uh, patrons at the ball glove level and above really receive the monthly minor league extra podcast and also the weekly Packers preview. As always, follow us on Twitter at mketailgate. You can submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Podcast Network. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can also leave reviews and help people find the podcast. So thanks for listening. And again, look for us next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. Well, it was uh, good. My buddy and I in the one fantasy football league that I play in just traded for Mike Evans uh, before this week, and he's got eight catches and 180 yards and a touchdown. So that's fuck. Mike Evans does.
Are you playing him, or did you decide to trade him because you gave up? Neither. I've been playing hardball with Steve on a Mike Evans trade. <laughs> How did that work? It's not working out great for me at the moment. Uh, he just got a second touchdown, God so he's got uh, nine catches, 182 yards, and two touchdowns. <laughs> Steve right now is sitting there with a canary feather sticking out of his mouth. I mean, my team's not good. Do you want Mike Evans? I do want Mike Evans. Because he does have a ridiculous schedule down the stretch. Ridiculously good or ridiculously bad? Ridiculously favorable. I need Mike Evans. Because I've been looking at it like, can I get back into this? The thing is, you're asking for two players that are better than the one other player that you were asking for from Nate. So, I like, I. So, uh, it's crazy. It seems to me like, uh, you know, somebody who isn't necessarily, who kind of is like, what's my best way back into this? It's probably keeping Mike Evans unless he gets something that's just overwhelmingly better. Yeah, I mean, I can just ride with him. No, you're going to trade him. The question is what you're going to trade him for. I don't think Steve is like you. I don't think he's decided he needs to trade him. Mm, yeah, Steve's going to trade him. He always does. Well, you have to remember, if he does this, then I can go shop him around even more. I know. Because people who aren't necessarily desperate but just want an upgrade would be willing to take him. I know. Where you need him to slot into the team that you have because I you have do. holes. I do, because my wide receivers are so weak and everything else is so good. I know, but your wide receivers, I mean, they're okay. The I'm saying my wide receivers are weak. I know. No, this. no, no. The guys you're trying to trade me, they're okay. Okay, both are ranked higher than Devin Singletary. So 